Good afternoon. Welcome to this session on residential earthquake preparedness. So we're here today to share with you some simple tips and guidelines to help you to prepare yourselves and your families and your homes for the next major earthquake. Our most recent major earthquake was the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. This, this photo was taken in the marina. If you look closely at the garage door at the building on the left, you see that the door's kind of racked, and it looks even like this building is leaning on the building on the right. The building on the right looks pretty good, and unfortunately, it looks like something way over on the right is collapsed. Another reminder from the 1989 earthquake in the marina, this building used to be a four-story apartment house. Uh, I don't know for sure, but most likely it had lots of garage doors and other openings down on the ground floor, a condition that we call a soft story. And therefore, it's most likely true that the soft story condition contributed significantly to this building collapsing. The 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake was, only, was a 6.7 magnitude earthquake. The 1906 earthquake was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake. That's roughly 10 times stronger than the 1989 earthquake. The latest predictions, the latest projections by the experts indicate that there is a greater than 60% probability of another major earthquake hitting the Bay Area in the next 30 years. Will it be a 6.7 like Loma Prieta or will it be a 7.8? It's definitely worth doing what you can now to prepare. So we'll first talk briefly on some steps you can take to, to prepare yourself and your family. All this information you can find at the website www.72hours.org. First step, you develop a family emergency plan. When the first step of that is look around inside your house and identify locations which will act as safe shelters inside your home. Is it a, a, a sturdy dining room table? Uh, is it maybe a certain room? But definitely stay away from your windows and stay away from heavy things that might fall on you. And also find a place in your house where you can store your emergency supplies. And because it's, there's a chance that you may not be able to occupy your house immediately after the earthquake, make a plan to meet somewhere away from the house. Meet so everybody can get a, an idea of, of, until you all can get together and, and decide what to do next. Some people will establish what's called a distant phone contact, somebody out of the area that everybody is supposed to call to check in. All this information and more can be found on 72hours.org. So you want to assemble your emergency supplies, and you want to stash them in places where you spend a lot of time, I mean, like your home, obviously. A lot of us work too much, and so you might want to keep some supplies at the office. Uh, and for those of us who work in offices, it's a good idea to keep a pair of sturdy walking shoes and comfortable socks at your office because there's a good chance that you may have to walk home. So now you're inside your house. And I bet you that when the next big earthquake comes, it'll be the middle of the night and you'll be, you'll be sound asleep. So therefore, it's a good idea to put together a grab-and-go bag and put it in your bedroom. Maybe put it under your, under your bed. And here are some items that you, know, you would want to put in that bag. Well, your kit. Keep it under your bed or in a closet or someplace that you can get to. For your shoes and socks, I recommend that you put them in a plastic bag because you don't want them to get um, any broken glass on them or any other kinds of debris. And some other things you want to think about now, uh, some essential things you want to take with you. You don't want to wait until it happens to start thinking about what you really need to take with you when you've got to get out of the house in a hurry. So here's a take a look at these items. There's one thing there, Howard, that I noticed that wasn't on the list, but I'm not sure. It's uh, on some of the classes that we've attended on this. Is uh, Cash is good to have in your home in the event of an earthquake because the chances are the ATM machine may not be working or you may not be able to get to it. You might have to go to the local store to buy water or some supplies for a couple of days while you're on your own. So probably recommend keeping two or $300 somewhere 
you know, that's, that's not easy because you're probably going to dip into it. But uh, you could keep it somewhere that it's safe to have because, as I say, plastic may not work. And plus the ATMs may not have any electricity. Water, 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 water. Water is so important to our lives. There's a good chance that you may not have running water immediately after the earthquake. So we should all store water for us to use. And so the, the rule of thumb is one gallon per person per day for five days. It used to be three days, but it, it's been the recommendations have increased to five days. Um, so for a family of four, if you're caring for a family of four, that's 20 gallons. If you're someone like me who I kind of take care of my elderly parents, I'm storing, my, I'm storing the water for them as well as storing water over there at their place. So what kind of water? Store-bought water in the unopened containers is just fine. Just check the expiration date. If you store tap water, you better be ready to purify that tap water when you're ready to use it. All right? So, and store your water in a cool, dark place. And here's a whole list of additional things to think about including in your, your kit. And all this information, well, it's, it's in the handout in the back of the room, and it's also at the website. Uh, if you're going to keep canned foods, well, you better store a can opener. And garbage bags, duct tape, those two items are probably the most important things you can you can store it, or they have so many different survival uses. After the earthquake, it may be necessary to turn off your gas, your electricity, or your water. It's good to learn now how to do this and teach every member of your family how to do it. Uh, but one thing is don't, don't immediately, automatically rush out and turn off all your, your utilities. Only turn them off if you think it's necessary, especially with natural gas. Uh, well, teach your kids how to identify natural gas. I think most of us know what it smells like. It's kind of hard to describe. Is it rotten eggs? Is it sulfur? But it's a pretty distinctive smell. It's a chemical that the gas company adds to natural gas so you, so you can smell it. So teach your kids to identify what it smells like so you'll know when you have leaking gas. If you think your gas is leaking, uh, if you're not sure, if you see your meter spinning wildly, then turn off your gas. If you do decide to turn off your gas, do not turn it back on yourself. You must call PG&E to have them come out and turn it back on for you. And that could take a while. So don't turn it off unless, if you feel you need to, if you're unsure, turn it off. But don't just do it automatically. All right, so now you need to turn the gas off. How do you do it? Most of us will have something that looks like this, a gas meter, and that's the actual thing that counts the gas. And at, there, there's a valve. Can you see that? There's like um, this little black mark. This, is, this gas is on because that black metal, I mean the, met, uh, the metal tab is parallel to the direction of the pipe so the gas is flowing. This is off. See how it's cutting off the flow of gas? The way you do that is you could go to the hardware store and buy a, a specialized tool for turning off the gas or as this picture is showing, you could use a medium-sized crescent wrench. This is called a crescent wrench. It's a wrench that has the adjustable jaws. And so you just turn off the gas that way. Water. Well, if your house is flooding, then you've got to turn your water off. If, if, you, if your pipes are broken, the water is leaking, then you should turn your water off. Most people have a, a valve that looks like that in their garage or in their, in their basement. So you just turn that wheel and that should turn the water off. But some of us, if you can't find it or you don't have one, then you could go out to the sidewalk and look for uh, this, this thing, this, 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 co this cover by the water department. This is where the water department comes to read your meter to determine how much to charge you. And so go home, go home tonight, this weekend, look for this, see if you can even open this thing. And, and see what it looks like down there. You don't want to get spooked by what you see when you have to turn it off. Go, go see what it looks like now. All right, so that wraps up preparing yourself and your home. And remember, go to the website for more information, 72hours.org. Now we're going to talk about what you can do to prepare your home for an earthquake. And basically, you have two choices. 
choice one is you can hire an architect or an engineer and have them design an engineered seismic retrofit of your home. That would be like the, the best you can do. Or you know, if, you, if you don't want to go that route, you can also do it yourself. There are some things you can do, some relatively simple things you can do yourself, which we'll talk to you about today, that you can do to strengthen your house. Uh, but you, when you're done, you cannot call it a retrofit. It's not a retrofit. You're just doing some things to strengthen your house. And so, uh, no, so you've decided to, to do a retrofit, all right? So it's pretty involved. Uh, you need to you need, you'll need drawings and calculations prepared and signed by an architect or an engineer. Civil engineers are licensed to provide structural design services. So you do not need a structural engineer. A civil engineer who does building design is all you really need. A structural engineer is going to cost more than a civil engineer. And so for a civil engineer, typical single-family home in San Francisco, if you want to do a seismic retrofit, uh, you can expect to pay a fee thousands of dollars. I, I would say probably starting at $5,000, maybe a little less, probably a little bit more, depending on how much work you need to, to have done. And then on top of that, you need to think about paying for the architect, depending on how intrusive and how extensive your retrofit work is. But once you're done, you can say to everyone that you now have a house that's been seismically retrofitted to the code. But, and yeah, or, or, or you can skip the engineers and do it yourself. And that's where I come in. <laughs> the on the do-it-yourself voluntary strengthening, uh, no drawings are required, but you must get a building permit. Uh, the engineer's stamp is not required. Architect stamp is also uh, not required. And it's not a seismic upgrade or a retrofit. It's voluntary seismic strengthening. I want to state the word voluntary because that means that it's the building department. We're not going to go out there and go through your home and look for every violation or every code default in your home. You're doing a voluntary do it yourself, uh, strengthening. You can, you can get a contractor to do it. We're not, as I said, we're not going through your home. So I just want to stress the word voluntary. We're not making you do it. Uh, it is a very simple project, but very effective. Uh, shortly after, I think it was the Northridge quake down in L.A., I saw some photos and uh, video that they had in the uh, building department in San Francisco. And it was amazing that the homes that had even basic uh, anchor bolts and shear walls and some clips they held up way better than the houses that had nothing. It was amazing the difference and the damage that was caused just by doing something so simple as this. Uh, and based on the valuation of your home in, in San Francisco or indeed you know, the Bay Area, for, for you know, what you're spending, you're getting a great return because the property values have doubled and tripled in some places in the last few years, but your home may not be bolted down to its foundation, which I think is just... It's, very dangerous, you know, and I think it's something that you should really think about, and particularly talking here to the homeowners. I'd like to talk about the uh, building permit application. When you go to the building department down at 1660 Mission, you're going to put on your uh, building permit the description of your work. And uh, if I can read it here, I think it's install 5 8 anchor bolts at foundation perimeter. Bolt bolts will be hot dip galvanized and will be installed at a maximum of 6 feet maximum. Uh, you're also going to say you're installing half-inch CDX plywood at the garage walls, and you're installing A35 clips at the top plate floor rim joist intersection. The place at uh, DBI that they give you the permit for this is a residential plan check counter on the first floor. The staff there will be ha happy to help you fill out a, a permit application if you're unsure. There's some other information on the permit you know, to do with the types of construction, number of stories, as I said, they'd be willing to help you with this. We, we want people to get permits to do this. So it is an over-the-counter permit approval. That means you walk in, you get your permit, you walk out, you pay your fees, and you walk out with your permit, and you can start your work immediately. It's not a seismic upgrade or, or a retrofit. It's simply seismic strengthening. Uh, based on a, if you put down $1,000 for your, for your permit fees, that's gonna, that permit's going to cost you maybe $200 at the most. There's uh, three things, really. You're adding the anchor bolts, strengthening the cripple walls, and putting in the clips. 
And the, the bottom term there means one size does not fit all. That means every house is different. So if you have a crawl space, obviously it's a little different. If you've got a typical, like there's a lot of houses out in the avenues, Sunset Richmond District, where you've got your garage and the ground floor, your living accommodation above, that's, that's what we mean, one size does not fit all. There are different types of hardware, and I will you know, get into that at a later stage. The anchor bolts, the job that you're going to be doing first when you do the seismic strengthening. The anchor bolts, the, the biggest thing that I would talk about, and I will mention it again, is the access and the space to the uh, you know, to be able to do the work, you need to create some space. And I'll just go over some, some of the items that you can see. This is, this is the anchor bolt that I'm pointing at. Uh, on the bottom is the, uh, this is the mud sill, and then this is a stud here. So uh, that's the three basic uh, components whenever you're, whenever you're getting to this area. The anchor bolt uh, guidelines for the uh, California uh, Building Code, 5 eighth inch or 3 quarter inch uh, uh, diameter bolts, at least seven inch embedment into the foundation. That means seven inches into the concrete. So you're not, you're, you have to allow for the length of the bolt for your mud sill as well. So you're probably going to get about a 12 inch bolt. You want to space those uh, not more than uh, four feet apart, a minimum of two bolts uh, per piece. And one of the bolts shall not be located more than 12 inches and not less than five and a half inches from each end of the sill piece. Howard and I had a bit of an argument about that. I said six inches, and he said five and a half. Five and a half. Words. He's the engineer. <laughs> and one thing to keep in mind with the anchor bolts, you're looking for A307 or A36, or there's also something called an F1554 for the anchor bolt. There's a few different types of uh, anchor bolts, and uh, today out at the front area there, Simpson and Hilti have a couple of stands up, and they've got them out there, all the different types. Uh, I suppose, having done a lot of these in my time, I do prefer the epoxy type adhesives, where you get the bolt, you buy the bolt, and you can buy it in a eight foot length, and you can cut it into pieces, or you can buy them in 12 inch pieces if you're lazy. Uh, and those are good for the older uh, concrete foundations. They also have a exp exp expansion anchors, which are like a bolt that you drop in there, and then as you tighten them, they, they expand and hold it down. And uh, the approximate cost per anchor, well, if you're buying them yourself and doing them, they're only a few dollars each for the bolts, and uh, your epoxy then as well. Uh, I would say I don't really have a cost per anchor as much as if you're doing a typical uh, single-family home, your materials are going to cost you somewhere in the region of uh, four to $500 if you're doing the work yourself. That's not using a contractor. So a word about uh, adhesives. It, I think that the best way to go, especially with the older homes in San Francisco, is to use the epoxy-style epoxy adhesives to put your anchor bolts in. And back in the olden days, yeah, the olden days, uh, they used to mix the epoxy. You would buy part A, part B, spread some newspaper out, and then you, you mix it together and hope you did it right, and you jam it in the hole. But fortunately, we have better products on the market now. And so this is Simpson SET, epoxy adhesive, which they have been good enough to loan me. And so there's the applicator gun. Here's the two-part adhesive, the two parts that are, need to be separate, which so... You stick it in, break, break off the tip of this, break off the tip of that container, stick it in, and then here comes the beauty of it all, the, the nozzle. This nozzle is so amazing. I am so happy that they invented this. You stick this on, and, and it will be on, and then you start applicating it. And the not, you cannot see it, but go out and visit with Simpson and Hilti later, and they'll show it to you. Inside the nozzle, there are tiny little veins, and what it does is as you, as you force the product through the nozzle, the two, the two parts will mix together exactly the right amount, and it come out the end. How much easier can that be? So there you have it. Highly recommend this style of epoxy. This is made by Simpson. Hilti also makes a product, and I think it, their product is called RE500, but go ask the Hilti rep. And the, my other favorite product is CIHL. So those are excellent products for setting your anchor bolts. Again, getting back to my pointer here, this is the anchor bolt. That, the square is a 2x2 two two plate washer that is now required by California Building Code. 
And again, this is the mud sill. Underneath that is going to be your foundation. Uh, usually a little pony wall there in San Francisco, a little, uh, maybe about 18 inches high. It's got that little, just in your garage or that. Uh, the plate washer must be 2 by 2 by 3 16th inch thick. And uh, if you don't want to do this job yourself, I'm just talking to contractors and that, the rates for putting in a bolt, it's going to run you about 50 to $75 per bolt. Uh, then, of course, you have to pay for your shear wall and that afterwards. So you're probably talking for, a, for doing all of everything, maybe somewhere in the region of four to 5000 for a typical single-family dwelling. But it could be more than that, depending on the size of your home. Just, but again, just about putting in the bolts, I'll just go over some of the points that, uh, having done this before I was a building inspector, and uh, I used to be happy doing this, actually. <laughs> uh, the easiest part, or the main part, is to get yourself a good work area. So if you've got a lot of storage around the walls in the garage, clear it out of the way. Give yourself, you know, uh, two or three feet. You might have to hire some storage for a few weeks. Just give yourself plenty of room because you'll enjoy doing it a lot more when there's some room. Uh, the easiest one to do is a typical garage basement with open walls. Mark location of the holes around the perimeter. Note where the joints are on the, on the mud sill because there are going to be joints. You might have every 16 feet or so you're going to find a joint. That's going to tell you that you can only go six, you know, you want to go six inches in on either side of that and then you can start your bolt again. Uh, as I said, you know, if you want to mark the location, uh, if you're dealing with the finished space, that is, if you've finished rooms in the ground floor and you're, for some chance your foundation has not been bolted, well, you don't want to give up on that. You may just have to remove the sheetrock in a stud bay so you can get the, the drill in there to, drill, to uh, do the drilling. You, you will have to put the sheetrock back, obviously, and probably repaint and stuff, but I would not, that would not you know, uh, stop me from doing that. Uh, drill the holes in the mud sill using a wood boring bit. Obviously, this mud sill is wood. So you just you, you wouldn't be able to use your concrete bit on that. You'd, you would drill it first with a regular drill with a, a wood boring bit. Whenever you're drilling the holes as well, whenever you get to the end of the masonry or even for the, you may have to take out some bracing. And a lot of the older houses that have, you know, the diagonal bracing, you may have to take some of that out. But always remember when you're finished the job to put the bracing back in because that is actually giving you some shear value as well. If you're using a 5 8 inch bolt, which you can use 5 eighths or 3 quarter. Always go a little bit bigger with the drill bit. Go a 3 quarter inch bit for a 5 eighth hole or 7 eighths for a 3 quarter inch bolt. Uh, start drilling the holes in the concrete then using a, 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 a rotary hammer drill and a masonry bit. You can always rent this equipment. You don't have to buy it. It's pretty expensive. You can rent it at any of the Home Depot or any of the rental places in the city here. Let the drill do the work. It's not that hard in old foundations to let the drill go right down in there. The most important part is when you get the hole drilled, cleaning the hole out because the epoxy will not set. And there are, you can use your shop vac, you can make a little nozzle there to, to get all the dust out. Or even out at the Simpson table this morning, I see they have a little apparatus like a wire brush that you can use to clean all the dust out of there. It's, that's the important part. The bolts will not set if you don't clean them out properly. Uh, the other thing as well, if you're drilling into the concrete and suddenly your drill, bit, your drill stops, that means you've probably had a bit of steel or something in there, which is good because that means you might have rebar in your foundation, which is really good. Right, Howard? Better than none. Yeah. So if that's the case, just move the location. Don't panic. Just move it over a couple of inches towards you or maybe an inch towards you or an inch back on the mud sill so you miss the piece of steel. When all the holes are drilled, again, very important to clean them out properly. Uh, set the bolts in using your epoxy like Howard showed you. You want to fill up the hole about halfway and then put the bolt down in there, sink it down in there, uh, until you hit the bottom of the hole. Uh, I would let the bolt set down approximately 48 hours. Actually, I was looking on the canister, it doesn't say, but I would say 48 hours. These things are going to tighten after a few hours, but I would let them sit for a couple of days before I would go back. Uh, then when, whenever they're set, you want to install the 2x2 uh, two two washer on top of the bolt, and then put, you know, put on the nut and tighten it down. It just needs to be tightened firmly. You don't want to really want to crush the wood because that is what will happen. The epoxy is very strong. I'll, put, I'll talk a little bit about the wedge anchors, putting them in. I, I didn't really use these a lot, but there's no epoxy required on the wedge anchors. You need to be spot on, though, with the size of the hole because these things can be very temperamental when you go to tighten them up. They may not take the, uh, the, the grip very well, but uh, you just need to be a little bit more careful with them. They're cleaner 
They don't, there's no epoxy coming up over the top of the mud sill. There's another important part here. I know in my house I have this. The mud sill is used sometimes wider than the stud. In the old days they used like a big 8-inch mud sill, but the stud's only 2 inches. Before you start drilling at all, even into the wood, you may have to install a block in here. That's a piece of 2x4 or 2x6, depending on the width of your stud. They probably should be 2x6s. That block should go in first because if that's going to be at a shear wall, where if you're going to put plywood on, you need to be able to nail into that block to get proper shear wall nailing into the bottom. Areas such as crawl spaces are definitely more difficult, but not impossible. They're just a little bit harder. They're more work. Uh, again, Simpson do make some wall uh, foundation plates that go in horizontally, and then you can nail them down. They're really good. Though. They've only been out probably in the last five, six, seven years, but they're really good. I wouldn't give up if I only had a limited headroom. Uh, you can still get this done. It's just a little bit more difficult. I'm making it sound really easy. You are going to hit your knuckles. You're going to bang your head. Watch out for plumbing and electrical lines when you're doing it. If you're going to be doing it yourself, you just don't want to uh, blow up the house or flood the place because you're putting in an anchor bolt. But anyway, uh, don't give up. And as I say, it's not that hard to do. And, you know, the other thing, just before I, sorry, Howard, the, if you've got a brick foundation, some places still in San Francisco have brick foundations. They are, brick foundations are, we would advise you to replace it. That's what the building department would probably do. But if you're in a position where you don't have the money to do that, uh, you still can put down uh, some sort of anchor bolts into it. You have to be really careful, though, because when you go to drill into the brick, it's just going to crumble, and it'll just, deteri it'll just evaporate into nothing. So be very careful when you're doing it. I would seek an engineer's advice, actually, before I would uh, try to do a, a brick foundation with anchor bolts, because, as I said, it's just a little bit more difficult. I did speak to the Hilti guy out there this morning, and he did say that Hilti were now making a product that uh, suited brick foundations as well. So you might want to look into that afterwards. Let's talk about plywood. Plywood. Plywood and cripple walls. Cripple walls. What are cripple walls? Cripple walls. Well, cripple walls are those short little walls which are take up the space between the top of your foundation and the bottom of the first floor, and they usually occur where you have a crawl space. We don't really have houses with crawl spaces in San Francisco, do we? No, we don't. So I guess we don't really have cripple walls. But we do have lots of houses with first floor garages. And so those walls are basically just like cripple walls. And those walls, without any sheathing on them, provide a weak link. So strengthening your cripple walls is, is a very cost-effective way of increasing the strength of your house tremendously. The plywood guidelines at cripple walls, well, when you say cripple wall again, that, that could be your garage uh, with your, again, the open, the open walls there in your garage. Uh, half inch thick CDX or struck one plywood, any builder's supply place will sell that to you. Uh, minimum four feet long segments, but longer segments are better. Well distributed among the cripple walls at all sides of the house. Cover the corners. That means on your corners that, you know, if you have a, just a, your four corners, you want to get it on the front wall, the side wall, the back wall, and the back side wall. On those four corners, that's really important to do it there. The other part that I know from, and I'm not an engineer, but anyway, at the stir wall, where you've got a stir there, in a, if you have a terrazzo or a brick stir going up, the wall that supports that, it's always good to add shear there because that wall will take a bit of, uh, in the earthquake, it's kind of sitting there on its own, and you don't want your foot, you know, that's, that's definitely going to help. To do that. Using common nails, not box or sinker or not inch and a half shorts. Galvanized common nails, probably best, but you don't really need them inside because you shouldn't really have any water in there. Uh, they're not essential. Nail along all the edges of each sheet of plywood. You need to add blocking. That means you need to get nailing at all four sides. So as I said earlier on when I was talking about the anchor bolts, you should put in the blocking and that should be done before you start. Also, if you've got anything like a uh, gas meter or electrical box, something big like that, you want to block on four sides of that to get the nailing around that penetration uh, continuously. And then another important thing is the vent holes in the plywood. You want to get air circulation. So you want about a two-inch hole at the top and bottom of the sheet the straps here, the little bracket that I have in my, the A34 metal connector, that's a little L bracket. And where that goes is at the top of your wall in the, in the ground floor, you've got your top plate, and then you've got your joist above that, and you've got a rim joist. 
the little L bracket, and the, again the right side at the front on the display things, that is nailed to the top, onto your top plate, and then it's also nailed into the rim joist. That helps as well any uplift of the, top, of the above story. And that's very advisable, very cheap. These things are less than a dollar each. And uh, there's also a great little uh, invention now called a palm nailer, which uh, saves you hammering because there's, up there there's not a lot of uh, room to swing a hammer at that area. And these palm nailers, they, you just put the nail in, they, they work off a, 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 a compressor, and uh, they just they fasten these things real quick. You could do your whole house in three or four hours easily on these, and they're really valuable. If you get the, the book here, uh, Pulling Down Roots in Earthquake Country. This has some really good illustrations on what I'm talking about. Uh, so that's it for the plywood. Uh, again, I would not plywood my whole basement. I would just, you know, the corners, and then I would maybe do another couple of sheets up the side walls, but I would not waste the money on putting in like 30 or 40 sheets of plywood. I don't think it's, it's really, it's the minimum, like if you put the, uh, you know, the suggested ratio in, I think that would be better. Again, on the, uh, some of the websites, abag.com, which we're going to talk about later on just before we finish, that's got a really good illustration on how to, on a floor space and where it's advisable to put the plywood. So there are also some other items that you should think about uh, anchoring for, for an earthquake, things like uh, brick chimneys, where everyone with a brick chimney, you should have it rigidly braced back to your house so it doesn't fall and then hurt somebody on a sidewalk or, or it doesn't fall back into your, through your own roof. Uh, if you have a fancy house with, with heavy light fixtures that may swing or big tall pieces of furniture that could fall over, then uh, you want to, for the tall furniture and the bookcases, you want to get some of those doodads that connect. To, and there's some examples over here of the doodads that connect the top of the, these tall pieces of furniture back to the house. On the water heaters then, the earthquake strapping of the water heaters, it's two metal straps, uh, one-third points, anchored to the studs, not just the drywall. So you get the strap the whole way around. Uh, our illustration here is a little bit flawed because the water heater should actually be raised off the floor. I don't know if any of our plumbing inspectors are around, but that, that is not a proper illustration. The water heater should be up by 18 inches from the, from the floor. But as I say, this is very important. You wouldn't even think that you, this is something that should be done, like, right away. You know, get your, this is very important because you've got gas and water and everything coming out of this. So really important to do the water heater. All right. <clears throat> For additional information, as we said before, please visit www70. So a document called FEMA 526 which uh, gives information on how to prepare personally for an earthquake. The 800 number is there. FEMA documents are free. You've already paid for them. NERT, I, I recommend everyone sign up for the next NERT training, NERT, Neighborhood, Earth, uh, Neighborhood Emergency Response Training, run by the fire department, and they'll teach you additional uh, preparedness and survival skills. So, questions? Please use the center mics. Hello. Hello. Um, I just had my hot water heater replaced with a brand new 18-inch stand, and everybody's nailed down except the stand isn't. Am I supposed to go back and get the stand somehow connected to the cement floor? You can get some sort of brackets there. You know, there's a little L brackets that you could get that could, you know, in some, uh, if you have a metal bracket, obviously, you could just screw like a little, any type of an L bracket, and then just screw it down into your concrete slab. Is that going to compromise these skinny little legs that... Hold this no, 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 not well, at all. Not don't, at all. Don't the legs, don't the bottoms of the legs already have little holes in them? For nope. No. Yeah, you know, no. I've never actually seen a stand bolted down, but you know, there you go. You're bringing up a good point. You know, it's definitely the more you do, the more. If you see something like that, it's a good idea to do it. You know, it's good. I, I think the weight, I, the weight of the, uh, if you think of the, the weight of the water in the heater, I don't think it's going to shake as much as fall out the ways when it in the earthquakes. So that water heater weighs a lot. So. You know, I don't think the stand's going anywhere. Okay. One other thing. Could you describe again these clips that go on the top of Any the... Any hardware store would... Oh, the, sorry, no, no, the I just, no, tell me the junction that they're connecting. I'm not completely uh, clear. The little clips, the A34 clips. What are they connecting what to what? Well, you've got your top plate at the, where your studs at the top. You know, you have your bottom plate at the bottom. Then where your studs end, you've got your double top plate. 
Then above that, you've got your floor joist probably is supporting it. Then you've got a rim joist which sits, which your joists are meet. When the joists meet, they've got a, that's the rim joist. So you, you would, so the rim joist, top plate, your studs. So rim joist, top plate, right in there is where you will put your A35s. I, I was hoping you'd talk about this. It, this is great talking about bolting, you know, the foundation and that. But there, I thought you'd go a little farther because so many buildings, and, and I, we have a building, are built over garages, like you say, in basements with nothing, you know, no walls in be, holding the, the house up in, in between. And it seems to me it's a good idea to add rooms down there and walls or something to make it extra strong, not just bolting the foundation. If it's a... If in San Francisco, if it's a typical house, it means it's probably 25 feet wide and maybe 40 or 60 feet long. And, and, so, and it was built in 1912. Okay. <laughs> so, so basically, you know, you're going to have perimeter walls, and so that's what we're talking about. If you if you add ply, if you if you anchor those walls down to the foundation around the perimeter of the house, and you put in new plywood in a nice distributed fashion to the walls. You've done a lot. You've done exactly what we're talking about here. Right. You don't really need to worry too much about that center beam. Well, we want to add rooms down, down below, so it's, it's something we want to do. And so it would be a benefit to, you know, put walls in, right? Okay. A center wall. Yeah, you know, you know what, what, what I recommend you do, and I think we touched on it earlier, would be to get an engineer's evaluation on that because you might need uh, some, some type of a moment frame, maybe some steel beams in there. Some kind yeah. of what? Steel beams, maybe a moment, a steel oh, moment frame. Steel beams. Yeah, a steel oh. moment frame. That's I've, we we see a lot of that in residential construction. But again, that's more in depth than what we're here for to talk about today. It's definitely get an engineer out there and show him your condition. But I agree with Howard. Even if you do the basic stuff, as what we're talking about, that's going to help your building a lot. Okay. okay? Thank you. The lady in the front. Good afternoon. Uh, you mentioned earlier on the seismic strengthening. Uh, when you were an inspector and you viewed the houses that were uh, strengthened as opposed to the ones who didn't, you said they fared fairly well. Well, after you're spending thousands of dollars on this civil engineer to go in and do this seismic strengthening, I mean, just how much more of a peace of mind would you have that your house really is going to do better than faring well? Well, I think you're referring to the point I made. I was talking about the Northridge quake, is that the mm -hmm. point? Yeah, what I was talking about there was just the basic, what I saw was photographs of houses that just had anchor bolts and shear walls. I won't talk, I'm not talking about engineer, you know, a full seismic retrofit. I'm just talking about the basic seismic strengthening that they fared a lot better than the ones that didn't have anything. I'm not saying you're not going to have damage in your home, but those ones that had that uh, affordable type of upgrade, Definitely fared better. When you were talking about going out to the sidewalk and uh, lifting up the uh, piece of concrete and turning off the water, what sort of tool do you need to turn the water off? You have a big heavy screwdriver, then that you could use that as a wedge to open up the, the cover. I have no trouble opening it. I want okay. To know how to then turn it off. I believe that down below, if you just had like a crescent wrench, you'll be able to get it down and and. And turn, turn the valve. There is, a, there is a tool sold that shuts off the water at the main as well. Okay, the next question, which should be brief. If you're putting up the plywood in the basement uh, and you also want to insulate the walls in the basement, should you put them behind the plywood, the insulation, or in front? Uh, you could put the insulation behind the plywood. That would be fine. But usually in an unconditioned space, I'm not sure if you're talking about on an unconditioned space, you wouldn't really have to insulate it. But if you want to, that's fine. You could put it into the stud bed before you put the plywood on. That would be okay. Yeah. Uh, for homes with a brick foundation, would you recommend the owners consider uh, concrete capping or are your choices really limited to a new foundation or you know, possibly some of these new uh, bolting techniques? Concrete capping is a method that's often used. You, know, you might consider completely replacing it. But that be, I mean, you would consult with an engineer or an architect and see what they come up with. Yeah, the brick foundations, you know, I, I, would, I would certainly look into the cost of getting that replaced, definitely, you know. But uh, you could, as I say, Howard's idea is good. 
definitely get an engineer to give you an evaluation of other measures that you could take. But you just need a civil engineer, not a structural engineer. All you need is a civil engineer. A civil engineer who designs houses. That's okay. all you need. Okay, thanks. They're, per they're perfectly licensed to, to do that work. Hi. Um, we have a two-story, two units, two flats over a soft-story garage. Um, and I'm concerned about the front and the back walls. The front wall, there's a big garage door opening, and then there's also sort of an opening where the, the, the stairs go up to the first story. So there's not really any wall there that you could actually bolt or put um, shear walling on. So what would you recommend for that? Well, yeah, you're right. There's really not too much at the front of the house. Um, I, I reckon, well, there's got to be some space to at least put one or two, two down. And you, you, you're stuck with the situation. If you want to do something yourself, it's, you know, you're not going to be able to fix the problem yourself, but you, it's, you do the best you can and put in as, most as, as much as you can at the front and the back. And, and, and in my experience of doing that type of work in buildings like your, you know, like, like your own building that, that you're describing, I've seen steel moment frames used there where you've got a steel beam, you have three, beam, three uprights connected with a beam across the top, and you're going in there and you're doing the work. The best about doing that work, you're not disturbing your, your units above. You, know, you are connecting to them with the floor joists, but you can put those in if you've got two side-by-side -side garage doors. Is that what you said? Well, when, I mean, there's the garage door, but then there's also a big opening, yeah. you know, where you can kind of walk. Where yeah, the I know what you're saying. Yeah, I think a steel moment frame, but I would have an engineer look at that one for you. But that's, that's really what I would suggest on that one. My house is a single family, and at the backyard I have a sunroom. And sun, underneath the sunroom is four uh, clear standing uh, a post, and I just uh, read about your crippled walls. But my, my house, the, the, the post from the bottom of the ceiling to the uh, grate is about 12 feet high, and it's all freestanding. Yeah. What should I do? On the back there where you've got the, beam, the, the, the post, you've got your two posts holding up the beam, I have four poses. Okay, yeah. You want to be able to, what, if there's no connections in there, you can retrofit some, uh, some, some of the Simpson hardware in there, like a, a post base on the bottom. You could, you could uh, do a new footing on the, at, the, at the ground, connected with a new post base, and then do a column cap at the top, and that will help you immensely in an earthquake. That's, can I cover with all the uh, tree uh, walls? If it's, if it's open, you don't have to do that. You know, I, you don't really have to go that far. I think if you, I think, if I'm picturing the condition you're talking about, I think you just need to retrofit the post and beam connections. That'll help you a lot. And then you could add some diagonal bracing to that as well. would probably help. But that, that would be an engineer. Definitely hire an engineer for that. Uh, first of all, I want to uh, congratulate you on pointing very valuable uh, ideas for a homeowner to do a voluntary upgrade. However, there is one subtle thing that I'd like to... Uh, with all due respect, I think correct. If you go back to the slide of the anchor bolt, uh, Joe, you mentioned if you have a have to add a uh, blocking to match the width of the studs because the plate is wider. Yes. I would not put the nut and the washer on top of that block because then all you're doing is fastening that one block to the concrete foundation and you're putting the bolt in bending. What one should do is bolt it down as you show, and then for the plywood, add the blocks then between each stud, counterbore it so it'll fit over the bolt nut, and then nail these blocks down to that wider plate with the same nail spacing that you use on the plywood to get an adequate transfer. Yeah, have I, I made my yeah, uh, point sense. clear? I, I, have, I have seen it done like that as well. The only the thing I didn't add was I have done it the way I said I did it based on what an engineer told me using like a 16D commons where you nail the block down, you put a specific nailing pattern, and I have done, been, been I was actually told to do right, it like but that. But that just nails that one block down, you see, and the bolt. I usually, when I was doing construction, I did what the engineers told me. You know. Yeah. Well, this is another engineer. <laughs> no problem. I understand. Correct things. Yeah, exactly. Is there any benefit to bracing the um, the studs to the mud sill? 
No. Is there any any? I mean, there must be some nails there already. So I, I mean, if you want to add some toenails, I suppose, go ahead. But the most important thing, the more important thing, is the anchor bolts and and the plywood. Okay. Because chances are the studs are already nailed in. You may not see where the nails are, but they are prob they're probably there somewhere. Okay. Is there any is there any danger of making the the lower you know the basement level or the garage level too rigid so that your what your upper stories would would not sway but would just fall off? Well, not so much that, but what we were talking about earlier about distributing your plywood. You don't want to plywood the heck out of one wall and leave everybody else naked. That's bad because you uh, you might end up having some crazy torsional type of phenomena happening, which is why you want to distribute your plywood around. But uh -huh. other than that, uh, I wouldn't really worry about what you're describing. Making it too rigid? Yeah. Okay. And, I wonder if you could explain again about you said you should break you should break I don't know whether you use the word brace or what the corners with the plywood okay and I'm not sure what that meant for example if you if you had a perfectly rectangular house uh -huh. right so now ideally working in terms of four foot long or six foot long pieces of plywood and maybe even longer hit hit the corners hit hit the corners and leave the middles open. Then that way you've got the corners anchored, like in a picture oh. frame. Just oh, okay. grab the corners of, of the house. That's what oh, we're talking I, about. I see what you yeah. mean. My question has to do with the voluntary strengthening. If, if you don't need an engineer's or an architect's stamp, and, and no drawings are required, but you have to get a city permit, will the city come out and inspect the work that you're doing on your own voluntarily, and what will they look for? Very good question. Uh, yes, they will. Uh, whenever you get your permit, which you get the same day as you fill in your application, you would want to get the building inspector out there. Uh, we will go out and inspect the depth of the holes for you if you want before you drop the bolts in. If you're having someone do that, you know, we will, we will inspect that, that, that that's done properly. I'm, I'm planning on doing the work myself. So. Yeah, that's okay. So you would get that. You could also uh, you could get us out. When would you have to inspect where the bolts go before you put up the shear walls? Yes, and exactly. Before you put the plywood on, we'd look at the bolts. But we would also, we can, when, whenever you get a building permit, that entitles you to as many inspections as you need. I mean, like, there's probably about three inspections in that process we're talking about. Three at the most, you know. So your bolts, you could, you could get us out before you definitely put the plywood on, after you put in the bolts. And then you get us out for a final inspection when it's all, when it's all finished. But I have gone out on these type of inspections uh, to look at, if, people, if homeowners, for example, are not sure of the process, we will definitely go out and we can't do the work for you, but we can give you some guidance on that okay. as to make sure you've got That was going to be towards right. my next question because, yeah, I was hoping the city would provide some guidelines as to where to put the bolts at correctly so you don't put too many bolts uh, and so you don't fail whatever final inspection comes up uh, regarding Yeah, that. I think we went over that with the permit application. Actually, it says you want to put them at six feet maximum. Center. So one more question. Uh, a continuation of his question is on the do-it-yourself strengthening. Is there a limit on how much I can do under an over-the-counter do-it-yourself strengthening permit like? Well, we're, we're thinking that you're just going to be hitting the ground floor. Okay. So let's and say like I have a brick foundation and I just kind of like to take it out uh, and put in a concrete reinforced foundation under this over-the-counter permit. Uh, so, no, if you're, going to, if you're going to do work with the foundations, that doesn't really, I don't think that's going to be like a do-it-yourselfer type permit. You could get a homeowner's permit. You might get an over-the-counter permit for that, depending on how good your plans are and the extent of the work. Those sometimes are an over-the-counter permit at the ground floor. If there's an engineer on duty at the counter, and there usually is, then you, you explain the process. But you would definitely need plans for that. Once you're replacing foundation, you need plans. You okay. need structural calcs and then, details. Well, as long as the, the foundation meets the standard building code foundation for footing width and height and well, foundation width and height. Well, is well just to clarify, though, if you do any work involving the foundation, you need drawings. But okay. if you're doing this other strengthening... It's could, no drawings required. Okay, no drawings it. required, So yeah. now, as far as other things, so it's basically plywood, anchor bolts, right. and, and hold downs and other things that we can... Hold downs, I would say, you would need to have those on a set of plans, you know. And I would not just put hold downs anywhere. I think if I'm going to go to the effort of putting out hold downs, 
I certainly would want them on a drawing. Okay. Second question. Is there such a thing as an off-the-shelf moment frame so I can just go get a moment frame and stick it in because it's going to be grossly oversized anyway that I don't need to go get some engineer or architect no. stamp because that will quadruple the cost exactly. of the no. project? There, there's no. All, all steel is fabricated. There, I, I don't, I'm not aware of any... Uh, I mean, I mean there should be like a standard design that says you use certain W sizes and M sizes that, and it's welded and, you know... For a two-story building, it should be good enough. And, you know, well, by the well, time we have yeah. to get an engineer involved yeah. in special inspections, I can't afford to do it. Unfortunately, that's what is necessary. Yeah, there's no there's no such thing as as just an off-the-shelf moment frame. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not so sure. I don't know how much engineers are, you know, for this type of work. But you know, it's I. But I, you know, I wouldn't be put off by that. I would certainly price them and find out what it is you're trying to do there. You know. What their, consult, what their hourly fee is, you know. Is that it, folks? Thank you very much. Thank you. We've gone over a little bit. <laughs>